Fuskiers are a largely forgotten part of Jewish history. Who were they? When Wallachia and Moldavia united after the 1848 revolution, the new country of Romania was created. In 1866, a constitution was produced, and the seventh article stated that Romanian citizenship would be restricted to the Christian population only. Romanian Jews, who had been in this region from the time of the Romans, were now foreigners and anti-Semitism had become part of national identity. The Fuskeers were the Romanian Jews who, unable to find work, suffering pogroms and blood libels, were determined to leave their country and to do that in a very visible way. Organising themselves into groups, they decided they would walk all across Romania, then across Europe, until they reached the ports and the ships that would carry them to America. Calling themselves Fuskeers, which means footgoers, walkers or pedestrians, they were all healthy, professional men and women, tradespeople, artisans, workers and students, who trained themselves in long-distance walking and vowed to share their last morsel of bread with one another. Fuskeer groups organised themselves in cities all across Romania. The Fuskeer movement lasted from 1899 to around 1907. It's unknown how many Fuskeer groups existed and how many participants there were in each, although most ranged from between 40 and 300 walkers. I first read about the Fuskeers in Irving Howe's World of Our Fathers, and even though all information was contained in a few brief sentences, my imagination was fired. In the Yiddo archives in New York, I found a manuscript written by Jacob Wingelstein, a Fuskeer, in which he gave the itinerary that he and his group walked. It took a while to translate it from the original Yiddish. By the time I had... I was obsessed by the idea of crossing Romania on foot, seeing if any memory of them still remained. Luckily, my friend Eve decided to walk along with me. Sleeping alone in fields can be a tricky proposition for a woman. But my journey wouldn't end at the Romanian border. I would take the old immigrant trail across Europe to Liverpool and then continue on through the gold and silver mining boom towns of Canada to the first farming communities on the prairies. The result of this is the book, Finding Home in the Footsteps of the Jewish Fuskeers. Here's chapter one. Adjud. M.G. Manu, the minister-president of Romania, in a council session, stated... On April the 16th, 1891, I had the opportunity to see things at closer range during one of my journeys in a community in the district of Neamts, where I found the community offices in an excellent state. But when I asked to see the list of taxpayers, I noticed on closer examination that many of those inscribed did not have the right to vote. 
Therefore, I asked why more attention had not been paid to the law that states that only Romanians were allowed to vote. Imagine my surprise when I was thus answered. But they are courageous people, people with professions. Don't we need tin smiths and glassmakers? Why not profit from these people? Here in our town is a factory, and we need peasants and workers. The Jews are perfect for such work. This is how communal councils, who do not understand the meaning of Romanian nationalism and the need to protect Romanian citizens, authorize foreigners to establish themselves in rural communities, contrary to our economic and national interests. We look for nothing better, therefore, than to remedy this ill, and no longer permit Romanians to be oppressed by the Jewish element. Crossing Romania from west to east on slow, shabby trains that sway and rattle across the broad Transylvanian landscape, I passed through territory once belonging to Hungary, where Jews also lived. One village after another, I trace them all, follow with my fingertip the little circles I have made on the map. Luna, Ogra, Brankovenesti, Lunka, Deda, Rashtolisha, or towns of some importance like Toplitsa and Mercuria Kuk. Some villages straggle untidily along muddy roads, where horse-drawn wagons pull one back a century or two. Others snuggle red-roofed, intimate, into speckled Carpathian foothills that resemble nothing so much as a vast, rucked-up pale green carpet. Diminutive against this expanse, shepherds with their flocks are toy figures in a model world where other trains sketch themselves, briefly, onto the far horizon, mirroring ours before fading. Under the surprising intensity of a relentless spring sun. People wait in dilapidated stations with their bundles, and stray dogs snuffle along the lines, searching for scraps. Isaac Astruc, the Alliance Israelites agent, also crossed by train in 1900, and he too was caught by the magic of this most stunning landscape. The region that one crosses is very beautiful, for four whole hours it is perpetual enchantment. The charm and the contemplation is only ruined by the thought that the Jews were chased from these regions and pushed into the towns where they suffocate. Today, only old cemeteries with weather-rubbed tombstones testify to their former presence. We are already wearied by rail travel, but inspired by the sheer beauty of the landscape. Therefore, we decide to disembark in Adjud, a town where Moldavia, Wallachia, and Transylvania meet, from which, sometime between April and June 1900, a group of Fuscayers headed for America. Officially, because we are following the route of the Barlad Fuscayers, we should continue to Barlad, some 53 kilometers northeast, but travelling on by rail involves complicated changes 
endless waiting in crowded stations, then being jammed into full, overheated, filthy carriages, where women protest nastily when windows are opened, and where passengers relish eating garlic sausage, possibly a delicious victual, but a trying, odorous one in high temperatures. The stench of meat fills the compartments, hangs heavy on the tired air, melds with that of old sweat and dirty socks. My tolerance has reached its end. I am eager to start walking out there, out in that countryside which is so remarkable. I want to amble down those pale ribbons of road, threading between foothills. I want the silence of meadows, the sweet smell of grass and wild flowers. However, even before the train shakes its way into the station at Adjud, the broad sweep of the Carpathians has rolled itself out. Here fields lie flat under a grueling sun, and cars, trucks, and buses roar with giddy impunity over potholed, uneven main roads. Under thirsty-looking trees outside the station, lining the street are unlovely lean-tos, modern bars and patios. All claim to be discos. All pump loud American music into the hot air. Even I head toward the town centre. It, too, is disappointing, with its modern but shabby concrete block housing. I had been hoping for the architectural elegance of another time, for glimpses of high windows and old uneven glass, for elegant moulding gracing facades on beautifully proportioned structures. Such buildings existed here. I've seen photos dating from the beginning of the century, a time when people were meticulous in the creation of loveliness. But today, here in Adjud, in this town of several thousand, there seemed to be no buildings left from the pre-communist era, and certainly nothing of beauty, except the park. Huge, secretive, shady, and ill-kempt, this tangle is almost exotic, beyond control, or perhaps simply outside local interest. The vegetation twists chaotically, provides shade, and a welcome relief from disintegrating buildings, evil-smelling exhaust fumes. Could a synagogue have survived such drastic urban renewal, I wonder? I doubt it. But if we wish to make contact with the Jewish community, it is best to find a synagogue, or, failing that, a cemetery. Both Eve and I begin to question people on the street, but many don't deign to answer, merely shrug. Those that do are categorical. No, there is no synagogue in Adjude. Or, no, there never was a synagogue here. Dismayingly, when we ask if there is a hotel, the answers are also in the negative. No, no hotel. A pension? No. A private home where rooms are rented to tourists? No, there is nothing here. There is a restaurant near the now empty market square out on the road to Bacow. Inside, 
the one vast room manages to resemble both a communist canteen and an American fast food emporium. High above the sea of empty tables and chairs, neon-lit photos advertise strangely coloured edibles, greyish burgers, indefinable lumps hidden by puce breading and ominous greenish steaks. Five waitresses sit bored at a table, drink coffee, raise indifferent eyes when we enter, although there are no other customers. Only slowly does one woman eventually saunter over. Of course it's possible to have a meal containing no meat, fried cheese, salad. Will that do? Wonderful, just as long as the salad is the only greenish thing on the plate. And could you please tell us where can we find a hotel here in town, I ask. There is no hotel. By the time dinner is over, the streets are dark. Once again, the search for a hotel, a room, a campground is resumed. We have sleeping bags, of course, because we will need them when sleeping in fields. But tonight we are tired, and it's too late to fight our way out of this urban chaos and search for a relatively safe, secretive place. When all seems hopeless... A police agent announces, with hesitation and a few grimaces, that there is a hotel after all, or a sort of. He seems strangely ashamed. Following his directions, we turn a corner, cross five rubbish-filled patches pretending to be front yards. Finally, on the facade of a shabby concrete building that resembles all the others, I can just make out the word hotel scratched in large, flaking letters. Are people so unaware of its existence in their midst? And if so, perhaps they're also unaware of the presence of a synagogue. We soon understand the police agent's hesitation. Plumbing of a sort exists, but it is leaky and ineffective. The sheets, at first doubtful-looking, confirm their uncleanliness when, on pulling back the greasy-feeling blanket, I discovered a crumpled tissue. Downstairs in the restaurant bar, the large television perched on its high altar blares so loudly its sound is distorted. At tables in the half-light sit bronzed men, guest workers, possibly Turks or Bulgarians. No one speaks. Everyone seems exhausted, is expressionless, resigned. From a cellar under the room, designated as a disco and cocktail bar, the hard thump of American pop music seeps up through the floor, continues its rhythmic pump throughout the night. In the early morning heat, we once again take up the search for a synagogue, but people continue to answer in the negative. Some even look confused when we ask. A synagogue? In Ajud? they all respond. 
Apparently all trace of this building has vanished from human memory. People also seem to be unaware that there is a Jewish cemetery in Adjud, or even that Jews once lived here, but they certainly did. The province of Moldavia once bordered Austrian Galicia and Russia, and many Jews who lived here were of Russian or Polish extraction. Their rabbis, teachers, and religious traditions were similar to those of other Eastern European Jews, and Yiddish was their spoken language. When Hasidism was a growing movement in the 1700s, Adjud became a Hasidic center. By 1900, the Jewish population was estimated to be 1,000. We returned to the restaurant. Other than one man perusing a newspaper, there are still no customers. The same indifferent waitresses are sitting at their table, perched over their cups of coffee, as if they have never left, but are eternally positioned there. No, answers one of them when we inquire about a Jewish cemetery. There isn't one here, not in Adjud. The others barely manage to shrug in idle confirmation. The market beside the restaurant is now busy. Women sell gleaming vegetables, ripe fruit, and it is impossible for me to resist filling my pack with cherries, chunks of soft white homemade cheese, and fragrant fresh bread. Once, long ago, there were Jews in this market, and they were horse traders and vendors. Now there are no horse traders and no Jewish stalls, but Turks and Ukrainians mix with the Romanian population, and there is a spatter of different tongues. We question sellers and customers about the cemetery, and finally one man points down a sleepy street leading off the square. Down there, perhaps fifty metres. Old crumbling houses, their sides to the road, crouch behind shrubbery. Very old houses. If this road leads to the Jewish cemetery and away from the market, then perhaps this is the former shtetl where the Jewish townsfolk once lived. I must be right. It looks and feels right somehow. But the road eventually peters out into a field behind large, abandoned communist warehouses, and no cemetery can be found. Returning in the direction of the market, I spy an older woman peeking at us over a wooden fence. I ask her for directions to the cemetery, and she gestures back in the direction of the warehouses. A ruddy-faced man, lounging against a shady wall and watching us, now approaches with a jittery twitch of a gate. I will take you to the cemetery, he announces in a rather officious tone. It is very difficult to find. No need, Eve answers. Just point us in the right direction. No, he insists. I will take you there. I am the only person who knows where it is. Me, Eugen. He is grinning now, almost wriggling with glee. He has got his hands on to tourists, and clearly he's about to milk the situation for all it's worth. It will be hard ridding ourselves of his presence. 
Impossible for you to find it alone. I am just the person you need, me, Eugen, because I take care of both cemeteries. There are two of them. Still standing at her wooden fence, the older woman shrugs, shakes her head, starts to say something, then, perhaps thinking the better of it, eclipses into the vegetation of her garden. As we proceed back down the road, I politely offer Eugen some of the fat, glossy cherries I have purchased in the market, but he refuses with a sneer. Cherries! Who needs cherries? The trees are full of them in Romania. Passing a broken barrier, we enter the yard of the cement warehouses, where broken doors and shattered windows yawn open. An old cattle market from the time of the communists, says Eugen. Not used any more, obviously, although strangely enough, there is still a guardian sitting in a little hut, guarding nothing. A diligent, dutiful man, he watches us with sullen suspicion. Eugen stops by the surrounding wall. Here is the cemetery. Standing on tiptoe, I peer over the cement wall and the barbed wire. See around a hundred tombstones. There is no entry, says Eugen. Thanking him for his help, I clamber over the wall. I'm hoping, although at the same time knowing how vain that hope is, that he will leave us. Vain, because we have become his prey. We are stuck with him. He has scuttled over the wall even before Eve and is fast on my heels. When I proceed through the long grass, he follows. I turn left and he too turns. He chatters constantly and manages to be both annoying and obsequious. I attempt to make it clear that my understanding of Romanian is too sketchy, that it is impossible to follow his incessant monologue. But he is an unmanageable person, impossible to discourage. The cemetery is large, well-tended. Some tombstones dating from the 1930s have been toppled, but the others are in good repair. Eugen taps me on the shoulder. I am the one who cuts the grass here, he says angrily. There's another man who is supposed to do the job, who is in charge of the cemetery, but he does nothing, nothing at all. I do everything that has to be done alone, me he repeats this twice, then scurries over to Eve, repeats it again, comes back to me, repeats the litany with more insistence as I kneel, searching for names and dates, taps me on the shoulder, repeats it again. I have the impulse to slap him away like a mosquito. What name are you looking for? Is your family from here? No. This finally astonishes him into a minute-long silence. What do you mean your family isn't from here? Why come here to the cemetery, to this town, if you are not doing family genealogy? All the foreigners come to Romania to trace their families. They come in groups, in buses, in cars, Americans, Canadians, French, Israeli, many people. All summer they come. They take pictures, make films. There is a note of disappointed accusation in his voice, indicating that we are rather poor specimens after all. 
without video camera, without digital camera, without shiny vehicle. I mentioned the Fuscares, those Jews who left Adjured on foot, but already Eugene is looking away, perfectly uninterested in any subject not of his own choosing. Now we will go to the other cemetery. Come, perhaps you will find what you are looking for there. What is the family name you are researching? It is useless to insist again that genealogy doesn't interest me. Instead, Eve and I, Tarry, pretend an intense interest in these gravestones and hope that Eugen will soon be bored. But a man who passes much of his life leaning against a wall has little concept of Henri. Back over the cement wall, out beyond the warehouse complex, further down the road, surrounded by a wall separating it from a field of young sunflowers, is the second cemetery. Here, a man cuts grass with a scythe. He does nothing, hisses Eugen in my ear. Nothing. His name is Physic, and this is his land. That's the only reason why he's here. But don't tell him I said that. I'm the one who cuts the grass, takes care of the stones. He then hurries over to the second man, begins whispering. I am vastly relieved to be free, finally, of Eugen's irritating presence, of his endless chatter. This cemetery is more modern. The most recent stone dates from 1989. Are there still Jews here in Adjud, I wonder? I go over to the men, ask. Eugen shrugs, looks away. The second man resumes his work. Is there still a synagogue in Adjud? No. There's nothing else to be gleaned here. We offer a small sum to both men, to Eugen for having guided us, to the second man for his upkeep of the cemetery, for it is obvious that he is the real caretaker. But Eugen throws up his hands in horror. Money? You offer us money? We never accept money for helping our foreign friends who have come so far. Never. He slaps his breast with his hand to indicate he is an honest man, only trying to be of service. The second man looks less definite, but seeing Eugen's refusal, he cannot now accept. He repeats Eugen's words, imitates his gesture. Eugen leans in towards him, mumbles something about Israel that neither Eve nor I quite catch, something incomprehensible about us being here from Israel to make a report on the state of the grass. We leave the cemetery and head towards the main road. But within seconds, Eugen is scuttling after us again, monologuing incomprehensibly, gesturing wildly, pulling on our sleeves. Come, you're coming to my house for tea. We demur, almost at the market square now. We are eager to be on our way, rid ourselves of this shadow. But abruptly Eugen's expression changes. There is no longer any trace of his obsequious friendliness. At this moment he looks angry and threatening. Prods our backpacks. I want money, he begins to shout. Money! I take care of the cemeteries. I do all the work. I want fifteen American dollars. Fifteen dollars each. Now you are going nowhere if you don't pay me. Again, 
Eve offers him a far smaller, more suitable recompense. No, he shouts furiously as he waves it away. I take care of the grass. I want thirty American dollars now. On the right, a faintly picturesque wooden wagon is parked in a scruffy field. An obese woman stands on the steps, chewing slowly, watching this scene with curiosity. Eve thrusts some notes into Eugen's hand, and we continue on swiftly. Wait! Eugen is still following us, still shouting, I want money, more money, look! He grabs Eve's sleeve again, forces him to turn. She wants money too! He gestures towards the slowly nodding fat woman. Her television is broken, broken. Give her money to repair it, more money! His voice continues to follow us, threatening, shrill, the hungry drone of a mosquito. Tell your friends to come see me, me, Eugen. I take care of the cemetery. You tell them that. They must come see me. Finally, he returns to his lurking space against a shady wall, and we are allowed to escape back over the market square and to continue on in a northeasterly direction towards Birlad, some fifty kilometers away. Finding Home in the Footsteps of the Jewish Fuscares by Jill Culliner. Available as ebook and paperback. <laughs>